Nobody's had to take a step of faith for Jesus? I want to ask you a question. What happened after you took a step of faith for Christ? Oftentimes when we take a step of faith for Jesus, there is sort of an exaltation, there is a jubilation, there is an encouragement, there is a spiritual high, there is enthusiasm. But I want to ask another question. For those of you that took a significant step for Jesus, what came after the enthusiasm? The enemy, didn't he? For uh, those of you that might remember, and I won't go too much onto this, but I remember back when I was a young pastor at a church, and I had gone through an ordination process with a group of individuals, and essentially everything that needed to occur had happened. It was simply that I was going to move forward with a ceremony and be duly installed into a denomination. The problem was that in my ordination exam, I was asked a question that just continued to not sound right to me. I had been essentially going through a variety of different exams, papers, et cetera, et cetera, and then sitting before a board, a gentleman asked me a very interesting question. It was simply this. It was, now that you've been pastoring for a couple of years and are out of seminary, what parts of what you have learned versus what you are now are different or have changed? And I said, well, that's a very good question. Obviously, when you come out of any seminary, you are so indoctrinated into what they teach that you begin to recognize that sometimes there are some black and white areas. But there are absolutes. And this gentleman said, well, that's very interesting. What would you say are some absolutes? And I said, well, one absolute is the doctrine of the Trinity. And interestingly enough, this gentleman's eyes kind of rose up and he said, really? That's very interesting. He said, I want to ask you a question. Would you be willing to contend that the doctrine of the Trinity is nothing more than a Roman polytheistic ploy by Constantine to appease the multifaceted nature of multi-God systems. So really, it doesn't exist in Scripture, but it was more of a political entity to move forward. To which my reply was, absolutely not. We see the doctrine of the Trinity from Genesis to Revelation. Now, interestingly enough, what I also began to discover was there were no questions afterward. And so in that time, I kind of wondered, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, this individual was sort of playing the role of devil's advocate. Maybe they were asking a question. Maybe they were just kind of trying to see what I would do when I was pressured with a true doctrine of the Christian faith. And then I did a little digging. And to be honest with you, I'm glad I did, but there were moments that I wish I just left it alone. Because what I found was this gentleman who had said this was the head of the district of the denomination that we were in and was part of a church that was embracing a doctrine called progressive Christianity. And without going into detail, I will tell you this, it was anything but Christian. And so I had a choice. And the choice was to simply just let it go and be ordained and hope that all would roll on and all would be fine and we could all sing Kumbaya together. Or I could go forward with what I knew my spirit was telling me I should do. And that was to go to the board and say, I've got a problem. And here it is. I can lead you through this or I can step back and you can find another pastor but I'm not comfortable ordaining myself into a denomination when I don't have the answers to some very serious questions. And here's what's interesting. I found that the congregation was very loving and caring. But I also find that those that were part of the denomination that were very friendly, the moment that I went to them and said, here's my issue, and this is why I'm not being ordained, they weren't very kind. Now, I'm not blaming them, but what I'm going to tell you is, in moments when we take a step of faith for Christ, the enemy is right behind, trying to seek, destroy, and bring about opposition. And friends, what I want to tell you is this. 
that that can cause us to not want to take those steps. But if we don't take those steps in love, in strength, and in grace, we become nothing more than the world. And friends, what I want to tell you is, is this is what we see in the book of Ezra. This is what we see happening to the people of God. We've been traveling through the story of Ezra, and I'm going to go briefly for those of you that are here, just to kind of summarize what's going on. Essentially, the people of God had been with God, and God brought them to a group of individuals and built a temple of where they worshipped him under Solomon. Things were good. Things were going well. But then, little by little, the people of God began to turn to worldly ways. They began to turn to idols. And so, what was all about God became more of a little bit about God and a whole lot about the world and worshiping idols. And so, what God did was He went to those people and He said, here's the deal. Through a prophet Isaiah, I'm going to tell you that if this doesn't stop, what is going to occur is an army is going to come forward and you, people of God, are going to be taken out of your land and the temple is going to be destroyed. And the people of God looked at an Isaiah and they said, holy cow, got it, we're going to change. No. They looked at Isaiah and they said, What do you know? Things are fine. That's not going to happen. But interestingly enough, hundreds of years later, an army comes along by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, and sure enough, the Babylonians conquer the people of God, and the people of God are moved out of where they live and placed into exile. And the temple of what they worship is destroyed. But then also in Isaiah, he says... But people of God, I love you and I'm with you. And I will do what I can and want to to restore you. So I'm also telling you that after a period of time, another king, King Cyrus, with the Medo-Persian army, who's stronger than the Babylonians, will come and conquer the Babylonian army. And in so doing, he will issue in a decree which will return you to your land and enable you to rebuild your temple. And sure enough, guess what? That occurs. And the people of God return to their land, and that's where we come to the book of Ezra. They return to the land under a decree by King Cyrus and begin to do the work of the temple. But we've also discovered that before they worked on the temple, they rebuilt the altar. They got to the foundations of their worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or at that time, Yahweh however triune in nature. And interestingly enough, they build the altar, things are going well, and then they move and lay the foundation. They take a step of faith and they're moving forward. And guess what? It's all fine, isn't it? Interestingly enough, what we read and what we're going to see this morning in chapter 4 is that after they lay the foundation, you would think that the story ends. But friends, the question that we're asking this morning is, how do you respond when you experience opposition to your faith in Christ? Has anyone experienced opposition to their faith in Christ? Can I ask a question? Do we have faith in Christ here? Lovingly. Because friends, when we have faith in Christ, we should be experiencing opposition. And if we're not experiencing opposition, then lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is perhaps we're nothing more than the world. How do you respond when you experience opposition to your faith in Christ? When you tell somebody about Jesus, when you tell them the gospel, when you tell them the exclusive claim about salvation alone through Christ alone, when you remind them that apart from Christ, their destiny is one of eternal damnation in hell, how do they respond? And how do you respond when someone opposes what you say? Friends, it's interesting because what we see here is we see this very interesting time when a group of people who profess 
to worship God. Come forward and say, hey, let us join in. Let us be part of what's going on. Let us help you out. And interestingly enough, it sounds very, very enticing given the position that the people of God are in. And that's where we find ourselves, friends, at the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Ezra. Opposition to the rebuilding. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel into the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, don't miss this, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Friends, this is such an interesting time because the people of God are seeing God move. They've seen God move not only through the Babylonian conquest, but now the Assyrians and King Cyrus coming forward. Anyone who is paying attention to the prophets of old would be looking and realizing that God is doing a great work and very excited about what's going on. They come home, they're in the land, the temple begins to be built, the altar is laid, and the foundation is there, and everybody says, great, we're just going to cruise to the end. And guess what happens? Immediately after, the enemy is there too discouraged. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. I find it interesting because when we, when we look, essentially, we come to see in verse 1 that the moment you take a step of faith for Christ, right behind it, Satan will bring opposition. That's just a natural thing, and we should be aware and ready for it. When you take a significant step for Jesus, when you say, you know what, I'm going to do this for Jesus, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, you better believe that right behind it, the enemy is there to discourage. Think through this for a minute. We look at Jesus himself. He sets up his ministry. Things are going well, and what occurs? Immediately, he's sent to be tempted by the enemy for 40 days in the wilderness. Satan is there trying to tempt him to say, ah, dial it back a little bit. Just come over and put a little things in here. Worship me, and all of these kingdoms will be yours. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. When you take a step for Christ, I don't mean to scare you, but I mean to prepare you. The enemy will be right behind trying to discourage whatever it is that you are doing. We look, and it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Mm. That's interesting. But what's interesting about the context here? Right away, the writer of the book of Ezra is saying, these are enemies of God. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? How do they know? Why are they enemies? How do we have this context? Well, I want to take a minute, and I find it interesting. How many of you have seen a commercial out there by Ron Reagan? See a couple of hands raised? A couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were watching TV. It was after, uh, essentially, I, I believe, one of the playoff games. And up comes Ron Reagan, the son of Ronald Reagan. Okay? And he is part of the National Society of Agnostics and Atheists. 
And basically what he is saying is, is he is proposing uh, essentially continued separation of church and state, etc., etc., blah, 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 blah. And the tagline is at the end, Ron Reagan, not afraid of burning in hell. Look it up. It's there. It's out there. But here's what's interesting. I see all of your eyes going, whoa, that's really bad. Let's pray. And absolutely, I'm praying for him. But I'm going to hit you something else, and I'm not going to be very popular here. But it needs to be heard. Friends, I'm going to tell you this, that the greatest opposition to the church isn't atheists. It's religious people pretending to worship Christ. Friends, it's so interesting because what happens here in verse 2 is they come forward and it says, They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. Let us be part. Now think about this for a minute. Think about the enticement on a worldly level of what's going on here. The people of God have just returned from exile and they don't have a lot. They're back in the land which was theirs, but they are definitely a minority and they are definitely struggling for resources and they are also part of the greater Medo-Persian army. And so they're doing their thing. They're beginning to build the temple. They're looking at it and they're seeing God move and along come some people who say, hey, let's help you out. We got resources. We got people. You know, your timeline, let's look at your plan. Okay, you're going to build the temple in this many years. You know, we add to it with the money and the resources and the structure and the wisdom that we can bring. We can knock that timeline down in half or maybe sooner. And then we can have the temple and you can be worshiping your God. Let us be part. We'll help you. Sounds good, doesn't it? Let us fill the church. Let's let a bunch of people in. Let's have it great. We'll all be rocking. It'll be fun. Everybody will be singing Kumbaya. This place will be packed. We will have numbers beyond measure. It will be awesome, except for there's a problem there. It's what they say. It's who they are. Let us help you build, because like you... We seek your God. Wait a minute. Seek and you will find. Why are you still seeking and why is it impersonal? Like you, we seek your God. We don't know him. We're still looking for him. We have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Friends, there's a clue here to the wisdom of the people of God, and I want to take you back so you help under, it'll help you understand what's going on. These individuals who are speaking to Zerubbabel were essentially the people of, I won't say God, but who were part of worshiping God when Israel got in trouble in the first place. And they were the ones who took a little bit of God and a whole lot of idols and joined in. And that was the reason why God said, I'm going to purge what's going on. Friends, we find this in the context of 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 41. These are the people that are coming back to Zerubbabel saying, hey, we've been here, we worship, seek your God, let us help you. But here's what's interesting, a little bit of context. If we go back to 2 Kings 17, 32 through 34, this is what is said about these people. They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs and the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. 
they neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. These are the people that are coming and wanting to join in the work of the church. And it sounds really good. On a worldly level, it sounds very enticing. Let us help you. Let us come in. We've got the resources. We'll do what we want to do. We just want a 20% or 51% stake in the company. That's not happening in our world today, is it? Friends, what I want to tell you is this, that the greatest opposition to the church is an atheist. It's religious people pretending to worship Christ. At least with an atheist, you know where they stand. The problem of the church is people coming with worldly concepts and bringing that in and bringing the worldly concepts to a point where the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, is no longer worshipped. Case in point, let me ask you, what do you know about Jesus Christ? What do you feel about this? Where do you find these things? I don't know, but I listen to a lot of Oprah, and she tells me what I should do, and then I go to church. What do you believe about salvation? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross to forgive us of our sins, and that apart from Him... We cannot have eternal life, and our destiny apart from Him is hell. Ooh, that sounds a little bit rough. Let's just tell people that Jesus is a good God, and He loves everybody. He does, but He also died on a cross to forgive us of our sins so that we might have eternal life. Well, let's just do this. You know, it's too political right now. It's too hard to talk about the sanctity of life. We don't want to go there. So let's not do it. But Psalm 139 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Friends, when the world creeps into the church, the church becomes nothing more than the world. And I'm not being legalistic. I'm not saying that you all have to look like me, talk like me, and act like me, but I see so much of the world in the church to where the church doesn't have a voice anymore. Let us help you build. Let us be part of what's going on. And we see that Zerubbabel and the leaders look and they have a choice. They can go one way or the other. They can look and they can say, you know what? We can compromise a little bit. We're kind of behind on schedule. We don't have the resources. We're not sure of what's going on. What we think God told us, it's kind of happening, but it really isn't. Maybe we should just move forward and let these people come in and help us out. But the problem with that is, is anyone who's paying attention knows these people who are, interestingly enough, the Samaritans who worship idols and they are the ones who have brought Israel into the demise that they're in. And so Zerubbabel and the leaders have a choice. They can say, hey, you know what? We're just going to do this. It'll be okay. We'll bring them in. We'll figure it out. It's not that big of a deal. Or they can look back and they can say, no, the Lord God has commanded us to rebuild the temple and he has provided the means and will provide the means for us to rebuild the temple. Friends, the Lord God has provided us the means to build his church on his timeline for his glory and his honor and his namesake. And so lovingly, what I ask of us is this. Do we say, sure, come one, come all? Absolutely. But we also say, come and be changed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth. And we give them the gospel, the real gospel. 
We tell them about what Christ has done. We tell them about transformation through Jesus. We tell them about the commands of God. We encourage them with the word. We don't look to culture and society and say, we'll take a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of Oprah. Because friends, when the world creeps in, the church is no longer the church. And so lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is our response, even though we look at Zerubbabel and it sounds harsh, should be lovingly very similar. But Zerubbabel, verse 3, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. That sounds incredibly harsh, right, when we look at the context. I mean, you got some people, they're coming along, they're wanting to help, and all of a sudden, Zerubbabel basically says, get out of here. You have no part of us. But when we understand the historical context of who these people are, and what they're proposing, and what they're wanting, the response, even though it's hard, even though what we're going to see in a minute is it completely begins to derail what's happening on a temporal level. Zerubbabel stands firm and trusts the promise and the declaration of God and allows his will to be done. And guess what? Like that, the temple's built. Right? All the problems go away. No. Friends, what I'm going to tell you in verse 3 is that when we recognize what's going on, our response, okay, when we experience opposition for our faith in Christ, is to continue with the gospel and remain faithful to God's commands. Continue with the message of the gospel. Teach and preach why Christ went to the cross. Why we need faith in Him. The blessing and the joy of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. The joy of being part of His kingdom but also the recognition of our desperate need for him. Friends, authentic worship comes when we realize how destitute we are apart from Jesus Christ. Placation comes when we think we're okay and Jesus exists to make us better. When we continue with the gospel and remain faithful to God's commands, he will bless. Even though it doesn't appear to be the case at that point in time. Interestingly enough, Zerubbabel looks and essentially what they do is they take essentially a two-fold approach, which I think is very wise. Number one, they go back to these people and they say, okay, here's the thing. Just so that you're aware, God has told us to rebuild the temple. Oh, and P.S. by the way, this is what's so wise. Cyrus said so too. So if you've got an issue, take it up with him. Who happens to be the king of Assyria who's conquered the land? Extremely wise in this response. But they hold firm to what God has called them to do. They hold firm, fully recognizing that when they do, there is going to be opposition. And the opposition is going to get greater. And it is going to become harder. And so friends, what I want to tell you is this. Take a moment and think about this. How many of you want to take a step of faith for Jesus Christ, knowing that when you do, opposition will come? Count the cost. I say this lovingly, but I say it seriously. Because all of the apostles counted the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. And all of the apostles had a very nice retirement plan with a 401k and played golf for the rest of their lives. Friends, I'm not saying that we all have to be martyrs. That's not what I'm telling us. But what I am exhorting us to is when we take, if we take, a step for Jesus Christ, are we prepared to face the opposition? And when we do, will we continue in love, in love, 
to stand firm for the gospel and what it proclaims? Or will we bend to the world? I bring you this. Friends, there is no surer way of taking the earnestness out of Christian work and workers that drafting into a mass of non-Christians whatever their motives may be. There's no surer way to bring out the joy of Christ. There is no greater way to just diffuse the work of God by drafting into it a mass of non-Christians whatever their motives may be. Sure, come, let us be, let's do, we can do this. You'll have a big old church, it'll be great. You'll be the largest church in the world. Cold water poured into a boiling pot will soon stop bubbling and bring down its temperature. The churches are clogged and impeded and their whole tone lowered and chilled by a mass of worldly men and women. Nothing is gained and much is in danger of being lost by obliterating the lines between the church and the world. But we want our Oprah. We want our self-help books. When we have problems, we go and we look to the Bible, and when the Bible doesn't give us an answer immediately, we look for the five steps to a better X, or the five ways to a better Y, and we trust in that, rather than trusting in the God who has created the world. And then we say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust in Jesus. And we march off and we're all excited because we know that Jesus exists like a microwave. And we can punch in our code and we can say, Jesus, in two minutes, I want my meal cooked. And after two minutes, if it isn't, then I've got a problem. So I will follow you for those two minutes, but nothing more. And when those two minutes are up, what do we do? We begin to list back and look for other ways to cook our food. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building the temple of our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, this is interesting because oftentimes people look and they say, That's quite an exclusionary claim. That doesn't sound like the gospel to me, right? Somebody comes forward and says, Hey, I want to know about Jesus. Well, you have no part with us. Get out of here. No, that's not what's being said here. What's wisely being recognized is these individuals are coming in with false motives. And Zerubbabel is saying, look, we know who you are, and we know what you do. And we know that by having you here and bringing your worldly ways into this work, it's going to lead us right back to where we were in the first place. So no thank you. Because God has told us we're to build. And P.S., by the way, you got a problem, take it off with Cyrus. And you know what? God says, praise God you did it. And because of that, you finally arrived, and now it's easy. And the temple's built that day. Friends, we must recognize that the opposition will intensify and often appear to halt God's progress. I promise you that. It continues on, and it says, Then the peoples around them looked, and they said, Holy cow, these guys are amazing. They really are on fire for God. Let's be on fire for God with them. And everybody had a happy day, and the story ends. No, they said, Okay, you don't want to be part of this? We're not going away. And P.S., we're not going to just not go away. We're going to dial up the temperature a little bit. We're going to pressure you even more. The peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. Friends, the enemy wants to do nothing more than when we take a step of faith for him to try to, to make us afraid to go on building, whatever that may be, whether that's structurally, but also the church. 
I don't want to go on building because if I do, there's going to be a consequence. I don't want to go on building because if I do, I'm afraid that people won't like what's going on. I don't want to go on building because if I do, I won't be popular anymore. I don't want to go on building because if I do, perhaps friends or family members might reject me for who I am. And the enemy says, I gotcha. You don't want to be part of what we're doing? We're your friend. We want you to do. All you got to do is just let us come in and the temple will be built and it'll be great and everything around you will look wonderful. But you said no? Okay. Guess what? We're going to hire some counselors and we're going to work against you to frustrate you and we're going to frustrate your plans for a day, and then we'll leave you alone. No, for the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Friends, this isn't a day. This isn't a week. This is a long time. Doing the best I can, because there are different reports of exactly as to when the temple started and when it was finished. This just gives you a general outline, okay? That... This is what I want you to see. When we take a step for God, we have to recognize that the opposition will intensify and often appear to halt God's progress. Okay? So watch this for a minute. The period of reign, and this is why this is stated in here, okay? For the kings of the Persian Empire, approximately, okay? This is the best right now that I can do, and if anybody else has another timeline, I'd love to see it, but this is what I can put together. Cyrus II, or the Great, was from 550 to 529 B.C., Okay? So it says, from Cyrus to Darius, right? Down at the end. And there's a reason that it shows us this. Then we come along to Cambyses II from 529 to 522 BC, and then Darius, 522 to 486 BC. Okay? So we've got that. These are the kings and their reigns with the Medo-Persian Empire in the lineage that's explained at the end of verse 5. Now, the exile and the second temple, uh, the, sorry, the second temple was started in and around 538 BC. That's when they came back, began to build. 538. We're doing well. We've got the altar. God is with us. We're laying the foundation. Things are awesome. God is here. God has promised everything. We've taken our step of faith. We're off to see the joy of Jesus, and all is good except for the enemies right behind them. And the enemy comes and says, let us join. And P.S., by the way, we can accelerate what's going on. We can make it happen. And Zerubbabel says, no, I'm going to remain faithful to what God has commanded. I'm going to remain faithful to his word and who he is. And I know you, and I know what you're proposing, and I know that what you're wanting to do is to bring in your worldly practices so you can get your hands into what God is doing and take the church away from being the church. No thank you. And with that, in that step of faith... the temple struggles to be built for at least 18 years. At least 18 years. The exile in the second temple was started in 538, or, okay, so that's when they were exiled. Approximately 535, 534 BC is when things began. Okay? And it was completed okay, in 516 BC and dedicated in 515 BC. Okay, so that gives a period of either 22 at most or at least 18 years. Anybody ready? To have constant opposition on the church for 22 to 18 years? Constant frustration? Constantly people saying, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, we're here to frustrate you, you're doing this, blah, 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 you're not that, you guys are terrible. Anybody want that? Can, can, I, can I say this lovingly? Heck yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I'm scared to death of it, but yeah, I do. 
if I'm following God and His commands, if God has called us to do what we're called to do and said, I will do what I will do and I am with you, then may we do what God has called us to do despite what opposition we may have, despite what length it may be. Friends, lovingly, this, this isn't about me, but there were nights when I was in tears crying out to God saying, did I do the right thing? So many people are upset. So many people are mad at me. So many people are writing so many mean letters. And all I could do was go back and say, God, this is what I believe you've called me to do and I'm doing everything I can to remain faithful to you. And please, it is not about me. It is not about me. But that's counting the cost. And friends, are you willing to count the cost? Should that be the case? Or are you going to profess Jesus, but when you truly profess the gospel and, and get opposition, you will get opposition. You should get opposition. Will you back away? Will you kind of say, oh, no, no, no. Now, please hear me. I'm saying this in love. I'm saying we're not better than people. We are sinners saved by grace through faith. But I think right now that the church is trying to kind of do this thing where we're like, we want to be the church on Sunday, but not on Monday or Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, but not Thursday or Friday or Saturday. And when somebody comes up and we talk about Jesus and we tell them about salvation and they oppose us, we begin to dial back. We begin to change the message. We begin to become seeker sensitive. Heart check. Friends, are we willing to endure 18 to 22 years of opposition for taking a step of faith for Christ? The temple's here. God, you've brought us here. We are so close. We're going to have worship. The temple's going to be set. It's going to be awesome. All we got to do is just let these people come in. Don't do it. And Zerubbabel says no. And God says Praise God for it. And when, what do we expect? See, we expect that when we take a step of faith, God says, great job, and our lives get easier. Friends, when Jesus took a step of faith, did his life get easier? Did he do this for you? Even though we all cried out, crucify him? Friends, our lives may not become easier, but it's not about comfort. It's about the kingdom. And lovingly, what I want to ask is, are you more for your comfort in your Christian faith, or are you more for the kingdom of God? We have to recognize that opposition will intensify when we appear and, and appear to halt God's progress. For 18 years, minimally, 22, the temple struggled to be built. And I guarantee you that there were people in there that went to Zerubbabel and Joshua and said, dude, what are you thinking? See the mess that you've gotten us in? We could have had the temple built years ago. We could be worshiping little G God right now. Because it's all about the numbers. It's all about the bigness. It's all about the clamoring. No, it's not. It's about remaining faithful to the word. And friends, what I want to tell you is this. Kind of a Debbie Downer today, isn't it? But remember this. Remember God's plan and promises will not be thwarted. Okay? What he has said he will do. The rest of the Bible, okay? I just, that's probably the simplest way to put it. It doesn't get better. They encounter opposition. They encounter opposition not only from the external, but I guarantee you, and we will see, they encounter opposition in the internal. But God has said, look, I'm going to deliver you. 
I am with you. You will be my people. I will bring about a Savior. His name will be Jesus. He will deliver mankind from the sins of the world. His name will be called righteous. He will be the one who breaks the sins of the world and brings about redemption through his death on the cross, through mercy and grace. He will be the one that restores mankind back to a right relationship with God through what he has done. He will die on a cross and rise from the grave. He will go to the kingdom. He will return and establish it when I say so. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? Do we recognize that? And as we walk with God and we profess his word and encounter opposition, are we willing to trust in that? Friends, how do you respond when you experience opposition to your faith in Christ? Do we kowtow and run? Or do we stand in love but firmly on the gospel? Obeying its commands, living out its commands, and drawing ourselves more and more to our Savior Jesus. If you don't remember anything more than this, I want you to go home and think through this as you pray through the week. When we take a step of faith for Christ, we will experience opposition. It is just a natural thing. But what I want to encourage you with is this, that we are to continue with the gospel. The word of God, okay? That's what I'm saying. The word of God, the gospel. That's what this is. This is the good news. And we're to remain faithful to God's command. Friends, it's one thing to hold this up. It's a whole other thing to live your life by it. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm asking for faithfulness. May we remain faithful to God's commands while trusting that what he has said he will do. It might get harder on the church for the church to be the church. But do we trust what God has said he will do? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today with a message out of the book of Ezra, chapter 4. And Father, it challenges my heart. There are times, Lord, in my humanity, in my sin, I want nothing more than just to seek in and just say, you know what? I'm tired of swimming upstream. But Father, you call us to swim upstream. You call us to be different. We're not better. We're sinners saved by grace through faith in you. But Lord, in that, may we look to you to give us strength to continue to swim upstream, to be counter-cultural so that people see a difference in us, so that people see God in us through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that as we look at our lives, we would recognize you're not calling us to be perfect because you are the perfect one. But what you are calling us to is to worship the one who is perfect and profess his name. And so, Lord, as the world looks for all kinds of ways to get its fingers into the church, as the little C church looks for all kinds of ways to make it more relevant and worldly, Father, may we have the strength and the courage and the fortitude to be the church, big C, for Jesus Christ. Holy knowing, holy anticipating that when we take that step of faith, opposition is right behind. But when opposition comes, may we realize and rest that we serve a God who has defeated the enemy and we worship a God who has said, and what he has said, he will do. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. 
We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can I ask a huge favor before we stand and sing? Okay, I know everybody's all excited about tickets, et cetera, et cetera, but um, got an email today, and the Carnivalus, who have obviously been with us for several years, uh, were here, and they are moving to Cambodia. We're excited about that. Understand that they're leaving on the 14th, if I have that correct. So uh, they obviously will be uh, heading out to do God's work. Um, they're not here this morning, but... I do want just to take a minute and just pray for them. Can we do that? Is that okay? Um, and, then, and then we'll stand and we'll sing um, praise and worship. And uh, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I love you guys. I may go really slow just to have the time go to like 10, 33, 34 and see you guys get that. But no, let's go to the Lord, okay? Um, I just want to do that for them. Father, uh, we do come before you, and uh, we have just been so blessed with Alyssa and Manasseh and Bati and Kalevi, um, them being part of our church, um, them being part not only in uh, us encouraging them through prayer as missionaries, uh, but then also being part of service coming forward, letting us know uh, what God is doing in Myanmar, um, Lord, through their ministry. Father, we also have wept with them through the challenging times that they have endured in what has been going on in Myanmar with this military coup. And Father, we know that their heart is to return to Myanmar, but right now you are leading them to Cambodia, and so I pray that you would go before them. Father, I pray even now that you would just be uh, sending your ministering spirits and angels to uh, wrap kind of their arms around them, to give them safe passage, to help them settle in, to help them find and firm up a foundation and do the work that is called before them. Lord, I pray uh, for the Kennedy family too. I know that um, it is probably an exciting time to see uh, their, their family, their loved ones go out and minister for you. Uh, but recognizing as a parent, I'm sure that it's also a hard time uh, to be saying goodbye to uh, your children and your grandchildren. And so in that, Lord, I pray that over these next couple of days, you would just give them uh, a multiplication of sweet fellowship. Just take the time they have and, and make it times 10, as only you can do. Father, I pray that the fellowship, the time of prayer, the time of encouragement, the time of wisdom, maybe the time of counsel, whatever it might be, would just be blessed in abundance. And Father, we thank you for them. We thank you for the fact that they have answered a call that you have given to them, and they're willing to do so to bring glory and honor to your name. We look forward to what you will do through them. We look forward to how you will advance the gospel through their efforts. Father, encourage them and bless them, and may they find their strength in you. We do thank you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen.